Well, um, it really is an honor to be here. Such a beautiful venue, and and uh, to be following the other uh, horsemen. It's, it really is. It's great to be here. Now, I'm going to speak tonight about the delusion of free will. And to my surprise, this is an incredibly sensitive subject. It's perhaps the most sensitive subject I have had the uh, the honor to touch. Uh, it's sensitive to religious people, of course, because without free will, Judaism, Christianity, Islam don't make any sense, if you can imagine such a thing. Uh, But the existence of free will is actually a, a very sensitive topic for atheists as well, because it seems to touch everything human beings care about. It seems to touch everything, in fact, that makes us distinctly human. Morality and law and politics and religion and intimate relationships, feelings of personal accomplishment, feelings of guilt and responsibility. It's, it seems that most of what we care about in human life depends upon our being able to view other people like ourselves as being the, the actual conscious source of their thoughts and actions. So in this talk, I hope to do two things. I hope to convince you that free will is an illusion, and I hope to convince you also that, that this matters. And that's a, uh, those are quite distinct. And I want to begin, I hope on not too defensive a note, by telling you the two ways, the two most common ways of misunderstanding my argument. And this is sort of like beginning a marriage proposal by saying, here are the two most common reasons women haven't wanted to marry me. <laughs> and why they were wrong. <laughs> now, the, the first way of missing the point is to think that we, we simply don't understand enough. Science is incomplete. Some of our scientific assumptions may be false. There may be truths to discover about the, the nature of the universe that would put free will, the, the popular notion of free will, on some new footing. So it's, it's simply too soon to say scientifically that free will is an illusion. Th this is not true. This is, I, I am arguing that free will as a concept is, is so incoherent that it can't be mapped onto any conceivable reality. The, the, the second detour you might be tempted to take, as many have, is to say, well, of course, the popular notion of free will doesn't make any sense, it doesn't fit the facts, but not, none of that matters. That's an academic argument. We still feel free. This changes nothing. It's, it's sort of like saying that, that uh, atoms are mostly empty space. You know, this is, this is not empty space we can use. Nothing about our life changes. You know, everything is mostly empty space, but... I still can't fit into an old pair of pants. Many people agree that free will doesn't make any sense and that it's some kind of illusion, but they think that nothing important changes, and, and that also, on my view, is untrue. Imagine you're taking a nap in the, the botanical garden next door. I don't know if that's legal or not, but just imagine you do it. And you... you you are awakened by an unfamiliar sound, and you open your eyes, and you see a large crocodile about to 
sees your face in its jaws. Stranger things have probably happened. It should be easy enough to see that you have a problem. And now swap the crocodile for a man holding an axe. The problem changes in some interesting ways, but the, the sudden emergence of free will in the brain of your attacker is not one of them. But imagine the difference between these two experiences. Let's say you survive your ordeal, and you, you have a, it's a terrifying experience. Let's say you're injured. Let's say you lose a hand. Okay, now imagine confronting your human attacker on the witness stand during his trial. Okay, if you're like most people, you are going to feel feelings of hatred that could be so intense as to, uh, as to constitute a further trauma. You might, you might spend years of your life fantasizing about this person's death. How much time are you going to spend hating the crocodile? I mean, you might even go to the zoo to, to, to t- take your friends and family to the zoo for fun just to look at them. You'd say, that is the beast that almost killed me. <laughs> well, you might be pointing with, with this hand. <laughs> Which, which state of mind would you rather have? Now, I, I think this, this idea of free will largely accounts for the difference. The crocodile was just being a crocodile. Now, what else was a crocodile going to do coming upon you napping in the park? But this idea that, that the human had free will and could have done otherwise and should have done otherwise has very different consequences. Now, most people imagine that a belief in free will is necessary for morality. Morality has to be grounded in this idea. And it's necessary, therefore, for getting most of what we want out of life. And I think that's clearly untrue. the, The difference between happiness and suffering exists with or without free will. I mean, I no more want to be eaten by a crocodile than I want to be killed by a man with an axe. These are both very good things to avoid. Okay, and, we can, and we can avoid them, and we can talk about almost everything else we want in life without suffering any obvious illusions about the origins of human behavior. Now, the, the popular conception of free will seems to rest on two assumptions. Okay, the first is that each of us was free to think and act differently than we did in the past. You you chose A, but you could have chosen B. You became a policeman, but you could have become a firefighter. You ordered chocolate, but you could have ordered vanilla. It certainly seems to most of us that this is the world we're living in. Now, the, the second assumption is that you are the conscious source of your thoughts and actions. You're, you, you, you feel that you want to move, and then you move. Your conscious desires and intentions and thoughts that precede your actions seem to be their true origin. The conscious part of you that is experiencing your inner life is actually the author of your inner life and your subsequent behavior. Now, unfortunately, we know that both of these assumptions are false. The first problem is that we live in a world of cause and effect. 
everything that could possibly constitute your will is either the product of a long chain of prior causes and you're not responsible for them, or it's the product of randomness and you're not responsible for that, obviously, or it's some combination of the two. And however you turn this dial between the iron law of determinism and mere randomness, free will makes no more sense. What does it mean to say that a person acted of his own free will? It must mean that he could have consciously done otherwise. Not based on random influences over which he had no control, but because he, as the, the conscious author of his thoughts and actions, could have thought and acted in other ways. Now, the problem is that no one has ever described a way in which mental and physical events could arise that makes sense of this claim. I mean, consider you're a generic murderer. Okay, his, his choice to commit his last murder was preceded by a long series of prior causes, a certain pattern of electrochemical activity in his brain, which was the product of prior causes, some combination of bad genes and the, the developmental effects of an unhappy childhood, whatever influences were impinging upon him the day he committed his crime. The moment we catch sight of this stream of causes that, that, that precede any conscious experience and reach back into childhood and beyond, or beyond the person's skin into the world, the sense of his culpability disappears, that the place where we would place our blame disappears. To say that he, would, he could have done otherwise is really to say he would have been in a different universe had he been in a different universe or that he would have been a different person had he been a different person. Now, and, and as disturbing as I might find such a person's behavior, I have to admit that if I, would, if I were to trade places with him, Adam for Adam, I would be him. And I would, I would behave exactly as he did. And for the same reasons. There's, there's no extra part of me that could resist the impulse to victimize innocent people. I mean, it, even if you believe that every human being harbors an immortal soul, this, this problem of responsibility remains. I cannot take credit for the fact that I don't have the soul of a psychopath. If I had truly been in this person's shoes, if I had an identical brain or, a, or an identical soul in an identical state, I would have behaved exactly as he did. So, that, so the role of luck in our lives appears decisive. One has to be very unlucky to have the mind and brain or soul of a psychopath. But the moral significance of luck is very difficult to admit. It seems to completely destabilize us. It's a, it, we seem not to know how to think about evil in this context. And yet in, in specific cases, we have already changed our view of evil. Whenever, whenever we see the cause of someone's behavior, when we see, for instance, that a, a murderer had a brain tumor and the brain tumor was in just such a place in the brain so as to explain his violent impulses, that person suddenly becomes a victim of biology. 
our moral intuitions shift utterly. Now, I'm arguing that a brain tumor is just a special case of physical events giving rise to thoughts and actions. If we, if we fully understood the neurophysiology of any murderer's brain, it would be as exculpatory as finding a tumor in it. If we could see how the wrong genes were being relentlessly transcribed, if we could see how his, his early life experience had sculpted the microstructure of his brain in just such a way as to give rise to, to violent impulses, the, the, the whole con- conception of placing blame on him would erode. Now, of course, this is a problem that scientists and philosophers are, are aware of, and many think they have put forward a, a notion of free will that can, that can uh, withstand the... Um, the facts, and I'll deal with some of that. There appears to be a poltergeist in this computer. Uh, but I want to I want to argue for a moment that the, the problem of free will is actually deeper than the problem of cause and effect. I mean, most people think we have this experience of free will, and simply simply we can't map it on to physical reality. I think this is an illusion. The 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 free will doesn't even correspond to a subjective fact about ourselves. And if you pay close attention to your experience, you can see this. Your your thoughts simply appear in consciousness, very much like my words. What what are you going to think next? What am I going to say next? I could, I could start just wondering about why we don't eat owls. Why don't we eat owls? They seem perfectly good. Where did that come from? Well, as far as you're concerned, it came out of nowhere. But the same thing happens in the privacy of your own mind. It's happening right now. You've all made an effort to be here tonight presumably because you wanted to hear what I had to say about free will. And you're, you're trying to listen to me, but you have a voice in your head that just says things. Haven't you noticed? Now, I'm standing up here trying to reason with you, and you'll think, he looks a little like Ben Stiller. I was hoping I didn't look that much like Ben Stiller. (laughs) Thoughts just emerge in consciousness. We are not authoring them. We, We can't think them, we can't choose them before we think them. That would require that we think them before we think them. If you can't control your next thought, and you don't know what it's going to be until it appears, where is your freedom of will? Now, at this moment, some of you are thinking, what the hell is he talking about? (laughs) Here's what I'm talking about. You didn't choose that thought either. If, If you're confused by what I'm saying, you didn't create that state. 
Conversely, if you, if you understand what I'm saying and you find it interesting, you didn't create that either. Everything is just happening. And that includes your thoughts and intentions and desires and your most deliberate efforts. We will come back to that point. Now, of course, in a sense, your brain, or our brains, do think our thoughts before we think them. And they think many things that we never hear about. We're, we're conscious of only a tiny fraction of what goes on in, in our minds. And we, we continually notice changes in our experience, in thoughts and intentions and moods and resulting behavior. But we are utterly unaware of the, the neurophysiological changes that, that produce those those, those changes. I mean, consider the sensation of, of touching your finger to your nose. Okay, feel free to try this. It seems simultaneous. It seems like the nose touches the finger at the same time the finger touches the nose. Okay, and, and while it may be simultaneous in the, in the world, we know at the level of the brain the timing has to be different. It simply takes longer for the input from the fingertip to reach sensory cortex than it does from the nose. And this is true no matter how short your arms or long your nose. <laughs> so the experience of the present moment, even of the simplest sensation, is built upon layers of unconscious processing that we're not aware of. Okay, so even the apparently simple conscious events are not entirely what they seem. The, 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 the present moment is, in some sense, already a memory that is being buffered. Now, needless to say, this unconscious mach machinery produces not only our perceptions, but our thoughts, intentions, actions, decisions. And this is where the notion of free will and moral responsibility begin to get squeezed. Now, many people have demonstrated in a lab in many labs, actually, that, that a person's conscious decision comes after processes that can be detected. And there is a, there is a time lag between the moment you think you've decided to do something and the moment at which your brain decided. And this has been proven. Benjamin Labette did this with uh, EEG, and this has been done with fMRI, and, and actually direct recordings from the, the, the cortices of, of patients under, about to undergo surgery, we know that the, even the simplest, most apparently voluntary decision, like the decision to move your left hand versus your right hand, or the decision to, to push the left button or the right button, uh, when you put people in this paradigm and you have them watch a clock, a special clock that allows them to discriminate just you know, very fine uh, increments of time, and you ask them simply to, to make the choice to move whenever they want to. They can move their left hand or the right hand. Just notice when it, what time it was on the clock when you finally were aware of which course you were going to take. We know that, that some moments, half a second, sometimes as much as five seconds, before a person is consciously aware of what they're going to do, we can see in the brain what they were committed to doing. So it, the, the experience of deciding... Is, during this period where you still feel that you are free to do anything you want has already been de determined by the state of your brain. 
So needless to say, this time lag is very difficult to reconcile with free will because in principle it would allow someone to predict what you're going to do while you still think you're making up your mind. But the truth is, is that even if there were no time lag, even if the conscious intention were truly simultaneous with the neurophysiological underpinnings, there would still be no room for free will because you still wouldn't know why it is you do what you do in that moment. And again, you can notice this fact about yourself directly. Well, let's run a little experiment. Think of a film, any film, it doesn't matter, a good one, a bad one, and notice what your conscious process of selection is like. Notice first that you're, you're, this is as free a decision as you're ever going to get. I mean, you're, you have all the films in the world to choose from, and I've simply said, pick one. Does everybody have a film? I'm sorry to say you've all picked the wrong film, so don't ask me how I know that, but I do. Do it again. Pick another film and, and just be sensitive to what the, the experience is like. Do you see any evidence for free will there? Let's, let's look for it. First, if it's not here, it's not anywhere, so we better be able to find it here. First, let's rule out all of those films whose names you don't know and which you haven't seen and which you couldn't have possibly thought of if your life depended on it. Okay. There's no freedom in that, obviously. But then there are all these other films which you're perfectly aware of but which simply didn't come to consciousness. You, you absolutely know that The Wizard of Oz is a film but you just didn't think of The Wizard of Oz. Now think about this. Were you free to choose that which did not occur to you to choose? For, for whatever reason, your, your Wizard of Oz circuits were not primed in such a way as to deliver it as a possibility. Of course, if you did think of The Wizard of Oz, you should consider yourself a genius. Okay, so you probably thought of several films. And let's say you thought of Lawrence of Arabia and Avatar and Mad Max. Okay, so you kind of converged on those three, and then you thought, well, I'm Australian, I'll go with Mad Max. And then you thought, no, no, Mel Gibson is more than a little creepy at this point in his life. <laughs> so I'm going to go with Avatar. Okay. And you settled on Avatar. Well, well you still don't know why you chose Avatar over Lawrence of Arabia. And, and this, is the, this is the sort of decision that motivates the idea of free will. You go back and forth between two options, and you're not suffering any obvious constraints from the external world or any coercion. It's just that you appear to be doing all of it. It's just you and your thoughts. But when you look close, closely, this is, it is a mystery why you chose one over the other. And you, you might have a story to tell about it. You might say, well, I saw a, an animated movie last week, and Avatar's animated, so I, I remembered that, and so I just went with Avatar. Okay, well, the first thing to say is that we know that those sorts of explanations are almost always wrong. When you bring people into the lab and manipulate their 
decisions, they always have a story about why they did what they did, and it never bears any relationship to what actually influenced them. So you, you can bring people into the lab and, and give them a hot beverage as opposed to a cold one to hold in their hands and get them to cooperate more or to like one person more than another, and they have no idea that the, the temperature of the cup in their hands is influencing them at all. The psychology is just bursting with, with evidence of that kind. But even if you're right in this case, even if, even if the memory of the animated film was the thing that steered you to Avatar over Lawrence of Arabia, you still can't explain why it had that effect. Why didn't it have the opposite effect? Why didn't, why didn't you think, well, I, I just saw an animated film, so I'm going to go with something else. I'll go with Lawrence of Arabia. The, the thing to notice about this is that, that you, the conscious witness of your inner life, isn't making these decisions. All you can do is witness these decisions. I mean, you, you no more picked a film in the subjective sense than you would have if I picked it for you. I, I could have been saying Star Wars, Hannah and her sisters. These, these names were just appearing in consciousness. There was, there was this first moment where I said, pick a film, and nothing had happened, and then all of a sudden, the names of films started coming to you. And you didn't know which they would be until they appeared. So I'm arguing to you that, that our experience in life is actually totally compatible with the truth of determinism. We don't have this robust sense of free will the moment we actually pay attention to how thoughts and intentions arise. And again, it's important to notice that this is true whether or not we have immortal souls. And there's no, the case I'm building against free will does not presuppose philosophical materialism. I'm not, the, the idea that reality is just entirely physical. No doubt most of reality is entirely physical and most of mind is, is produced by physical changes in our brains. We know that the brain is a physical system that's entirely beholden to the laws of nature. But even if we have souls that are somehow loosely integrated with the brain, the unconscious operation of a soul grants you no more free will than the unconscious neurophysiology of your brain does. If you don't know what your soul is going to do next, you are not in control of your soul. And th this is... A, rather starkly obvious when you think of all of the people who do things they wish they hadn't done. I mean, think of the, the millions of, of Christians whose souls just happen to be gay. But it's true even when you do exactly what you wish you had done. In hindsight, it, the soul that allows you to stay on your diet is just as mysterious as the soul that tempts you to eat cherry pie for breakfast. So I think it's safe to say that no one has ever argued for the existence of free will because it holds such promise as an abstract idea. The, the, the endurance of this problem in science and philosophy is the result of, of this feeling that most of us have that we freely author our thoughts and actions. And that at the moment, the only philosophically respectable way to defend free will is to adopt a view in academic philosophy that's called compatibilism and to argue that, that, that free will is compatible with the truth of determinism.
Now, my, my friend Dan Dennett is a uh, the philosopher is a, is a compatibilist, and he essentially makes the claim that we just have to think about free will differently. Free, if, if, if a murderer commits his crime based on his desire to kill and not based on some other thing that's hijacking him, but his actions are actually an expression of his real desires and intentions, well, then that's all the free will you need. But from both a, a moral and scientific point of view, this seems to miss the point. But where is the freedom in doing what one wants when, one, when one's desires are the product of prior events that one is completely unaware of and had no hand in creating? So from my point of view, compatibilism is, is a little like saying a puppet is free as long as it loves its strings. Now, compatibilists push back here. They say that, that even if our desires and thoughts and behavior are the product of unconscious causes, that doesn't matter because you're, you're, you are the totality of what goes on inside your brain and body. So your, your unconscious mental life, mental life is just as much you and your unconscious neurophysiology is just as much you as your conscious inner life is. Okay, but this, to my eye, seems like a bait and switch. Okay, this, this trades a psychological fact, this experience we have of consciously authoring our thoughts and actions for a, a general conception of ourselves as persons. It's, it's a little like saying you're made of stardust, okay, which you are, but you don't feel like stardust. And, and, and the, the knowledge that you're a stardust is not driving your moral intuitions and influ influencing our, our system of criminal justice. The, the fact is, is that m most people are I identified with a certain channel of information in their conscious minds. They feel that they are in control, they are the source, and this is an illusion. The, the you that you take yourself to be in this present moment isn't in control of anything. So compatibilists try, try to save free will by, by saying you're more than this. You are the totality of what goes on inside your brain and body. But you're making decisions right now with, with organs other than your brain. But you don't feel responsible for these decisions. Are you making red blood cells right now? Your body is doing this, hopefully. But if it, if it were to stop, you wouldn't be responsible for this. You would be the victim of this change. So, so to say that, that you are responsible or, or, or are identical to everything that goes on in inside your brain and body, is to make a claim about you that bears absolutely no relationship to the experience of conscious authorship and subjectivity that has made free will a problem for philosophy in the first place. So what, what does all, this all mean? Well, first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's, it, to, to talk about determinism as a fact, is not to argue for fatalism. Okay, this, this 
confusion on this point gives rise to questions like, well, if everything is determined, why should I do anything? Why not just sit back and see what happens? Why not just throw the oars out of the boat and just drift through life? Okay, this, this misses the point. This is not... To, to sit back and see what happens is itself a choice which has its own consequences. It's also very hard to do. Just, you know, just try to stay in bed all day waiting for something to happen. Okay, you'll, you'll soon feel a, a very strong urge to get up and do something. And the only way to stay in bed at that point will be to resist this urge. Doing nothing actually becomes much harder than doing something after a very short time. So the the fact that our choices and decisions and efforts depend upon prior causes doesn't mean that they're not important. If I hadn't decided to write a book about free will, it wouldn't have written itself. You you can't write a book by accident. So so effort and discipline and intention, all of this matters. Goals. Goals. These are all causal states of the brain, and they lead to behaviors, and behaviors lead to outcomes in the world. So, the, so on one level, not much changes. The, the, the choices we make in life are as important as fanciers of free will imagine. And then, therefore, fatalism is untrue. That The idea that the future is going to be what it's going to be regardless of what you think and do, that is untrue. That's clearly untrue. But the next thing you think and do is going to come out of a wilderness of prior causes which you, you the conscious witness of your inner life, cannot see and did not bring into being. You have not built your mind. And and in the moments where you seem to build it, when you make an effort to learn something, when you try to perfect a skill, the only tools at your disposal are those that that you've inherited from moments past. No one picks their parents or the society into which they were born. No one picks the moment in history where they arrive. No one determines how their nervous system gets shaped from the moment of conception onward. So you are no more responsible for the the structure of your brain as well as its functional states as you are for your height. But I'm not saying that you can just blame your parents for every bad thing that happens to you and make no effort to change yourself. This is a, a... a way of misunderstanding the the argument. It is possible to change. In fact, viewing yourself as a system open to myriad influences actually makes change seem more possible. you, You are by no means condemned to be the person you were yesterday. In fact, you can't be that person. The the self is not a stable entity. It it, it is a process. But it is a, a fundamentally mysterious process. None of us know how we arrived at this moment in our lives. There there is actually a mystery here in the present moment that doesn't get eradicated, even though you have a story to tell about why you think you did something. We We are in each moment simply discovering what our life is. 
Now, this may sound scary to some of you, but it actually can be quite freeing to view the world this way. So our choices matter, and there are paths toward making wiser ones. There's no telling how much a, a, a good conversation could change you or how much it might matter to you to surround yourself with smart people or to get an education. But you don't choose to choose what you choose in life. There's a regress that always ends in darkness. You have to take a first step or a last one for reasons that are, are bound to remain inscrutable. And to declare your freedom in this context is really just a way of saying, I don't know why I did that, but I didn't mind doing it and I'd be willing to do it again. Now, I don't mean to belabor the point, but people have a really hard time understanding this. Just think of the context in which you are going to make your next decision. Whatever it is, a decision of any size, whether to get married or not, to go to graduate school or not, to eat at the Chinese restaurant or the Italian one, your brain is making choices based upon beliefs and intentions and states that have been hammered into it over a lifetime. Your physical development is something you had no hand in. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your genes. You didn't pick any of the influences that's, that shaped your neurophysiology. You didn't pick your soul, if you have one. And yet th this totality of influences and states will be the thing that produces your next decision. Yet, yes, you are free to do whatever you want, but where do your desires come from? Okay, so let's get back to this issue that I raised at the beginning of this talk. It seems that this kind of talk begins to undermine a sense of, of moral order. And in fact, this is the position of the Supreme Court of the United States. It has said that free will is just a non-starter in terms of our, our criminal justice system. It is, it is a universal and persistent assumption that's a quote of our criminal justice system. And determinism is incompatible with, with the underlying precepts of our approach to justice. So the idea is actually doing work in our world. The problem is, is that if we view people as neuronal weather patterns, it seems to undermine a basis for, for placing blame. Now, I think this is actually a false assumption. I think we can have a, a very strong sense of morality and an effective criminal justice system without lying to ourselves about the causes of human behavior. So what do we condemn most in people, morally and legally? It's the conscious intention to do harm. Now, why is the conscious intention to harm people so blameworthy? Well, consciousness is the context in which all of our... all the qualities of our minds seem activated. The consciousness is where our beliefs and desires and prejudices rub up against one another. What you do on the, on the basis of conscious premeditation tends to say the most about you and about what you're likely to do in the future. Now, if you decide to kill your neighbor after weeks of deliberation and library research, 
and debate with your friends, well, then killing your neighbor really says a lot about you. That really is the sort of person you are. The the point is not that you are the sole independent cause of your behavior. The point is, for whatever reason, you have the mind of a murderer. You're not ultimately responsible for the fact that you have that mind. No more so than a, a crocodile is responsible for the fact that it has a, that it's a crocodile. But a, a crocodile really is a crocodile, and it really will eat you. Okay, if you see one out on the boardwalk tonight, it, it's worth taking seriously. You don't have to attribute free will to it to take it seriously. Now, certain criminals are obviously more dangerous than crocodiles, and we have to lock them up to keep everyone else safe. Now, the the moral justification for this is entirely straightforward. Everyone is better off that way. But, and that still makes sense without free will. What doesn't make sense is the motive of retribution, the motive of punishing someone because they deserve it. That begins to not make sense. We don't punish crocodiles because they deserve it. In fact, that hasn't always been true. It says in Exodus that if if an ox gores a person and kills him or her, the ox has to be stoned to death and its meat can't be eaten. And in fact, for hundreds of years in medieval Europe, Christians held trials for animals that harm people. These animals were actually defended by lawyers. Okay, there, there were actually, there, there are cases of, there's a case of, I just read about, of a lawyer who was representing a large collection of rats that had destroyed a, a, a crop, and his argument to the magistrate was the rats couldn't appear in court because there were so many cats about that were, were going to do them mischief. So his client was, was absent. Okay, this, this, is, this went on for hundreds of years. We, we, we've lynched, there was, there was the, the latest lynching of an animal in the United States was in, in 1916, where an elephant ran amok out of a traveling circus, trampled someone in the street, and the good people of Tennessee decided to lynch it to get justice. They, they hung an elephant from a railroad frame, and they were quite satisfied with themselves. So it's, it's, you can see that, I mean, that those facts are, are macabre and, and, and comical now. You can see how we're prone to illusions on this front. Now, I'm not ruling out the possibility that certain punishments may be necessary to regulate people's behavior. It, it may be that certain crimes require punishment in order to be deterred. But that is... That is a a purely pragmatic discussion about human psychology and and the causal efficacy of punishment. It has nothing to do with with retribution. Dispensing with the illusion of free will allows us to focus on things that actually matter, like mitigating harm, deterring crime, assessing risk. So I'm not arguing that everyone's not guilty by reason of insanity. The bad people need to be locked up if that's all we can do to keep ourselves safe. And all the distinctions we care about, the difference between voluntary and involuntary action, 
or the, or the, the, the moral responsibilities of an adult versus those of a child, all of those can be conserved without this notion of free will. In the United States, we have 13-year-olds serving life sentences for crimes. I don't know if this happens in Australia, but this happens in the U.S., and it's not, it, it, it's not based on any kind of sane assessment that these children cannot be rehabilitated. It is based on the sense that they deserve this punishment. They are the true cause, the sole cause of their behavior, which was so heinous that they deserve this as a matter of retribution. That doesn't make sense when you relax this notion of free will. I mean, the, the thing you, you have to admit in the final analysis is that even the most terrifying people are at bottom unlucky to be who they are. And that has moral significance. And once again, even if you think everyone harbors a, an eternal soul, the game doesn't change. Anyone who has who's been born with the soul of a psychopath is profoundly unlucky. You take one of the most odious people I can think of, uh, Saddam Hussein's eldest son, Uday Hussein. He really is somebody who's... It's almost impossible to feel compassion for this man when you think of him as he was as a man. I mean, this was somebody who, when he would see a, a wedding in progress in Baghdad, would descend with his thuggish bodyguards and rape the bride. Sometimes he would rape and kill the bride. He did this more than once. So, so given that we couldn't capture him during the course of that war, whatever you think about the ethics of the war, it was good that we killed him. I mean, unless you are a total pacifist, you have to admit that this is what guns are for, to shoot people like Uday Hussein. But, but simply walk back the timeline of his life. Think of him as a, a four-year-old boy. Okay, he might have been a, he, his psychopathy might have been evident even at, at the age of four. He might have been a scary boy, but he was also a very unlucky boy. I mean, he, he, he had Saddam Hussein as a father. How unlucky can you get? Okay, he, was the, he was the four-year-old boy who was going to become the psychopath Uday Hussein through no fault of his own, ultimately. If, if at any point in his life course we could have intervened to help him, at four, at five, at six, at seven, at eight, that would have been the right thing to do, and compassion would have been the right motive. So, so the irony is, if you want to be like Jesus and love your enemies, or, or at least not hate them, one way into that is to view human behavior through the lens of, of, of a wider scientific picture of, of causation. Now, I'm not saying that it would be easy to adopt this perspective if you or someone close to you was the victim of a violent crime. This is, this is how we need to see the world in our more dispassionate moments. But our dispassionate moments are the source of our thinking about public policy and, and scientific truth. To, to see how fully our moral intuitions should sh shift, imagine 
if we had a cure for evil. Imagine that we, we understand exactly what psychopathy and all its variants are, and we can, we can make the necessary changes in the brain painlessly and safely and easily. It's just, it, we can just drop the cure into the milk like vitamin D. Okay, so now at that point, evil is a nutritional deficiency. Now, imagine the logic, the moral logic, of withholding the cure for evil from someone as a punishment for their evil acts. Would it make any sense at all to say, no, this person was so evil, he was so bad, he caused so much harm that he shouldn't be given the cure? Does that make any sense at all? Imagine withholding surgery from someone who has a brain tumor as a punishment when you are sure that the brain tumor was the cause of their violent behavior. To my eye, that makes no sense at all, and that reveals that this urge for retribution is actually born of not seeing the causes of human behavior. When you see the causes, if we could trace the causes in a fine-grained way, this notion of, of vengeance and, and this notion that people deserve what they get in this way as punishment would disappear. And this leads me finally to the subject of religion because, of course, the, the notion of God's justice is entirely a matter of retribution. People deserve what they get because, based on their own free will, they are misbehaving. I mean, this is the religious answer to the problem of evil. The only... When you say, well, why did the, how did an omnipotent and omnibenevolent God allow the Nazis to kill millions of people? The answer is, well, human beings are endowed with free will, and therefore God couldn't control that part. Now, obviously, that's not an answer to all the other mayhem that's born of other causes. So tsunamis and epidemic disease, an omnipotent God seems responsible for those things. But the... The religious answer to the problem of human evil is free will. Free will is what makes sense of the idea of sin, this idea that that people can consciously, as the sole cause of their behavior and belief, turn away from God. I must be the sole sufficient cause of my unbelief. This... This can't be true. This is, this is a, not only can this not be true, because beliefs are, the, are born of all of these prior causes, I can't actually be the cause of my unbelief. It, it, it seems impossible to describe a universe in which it could be true. And however you tune the variables of, de- of, of determinism and randomness, free will doesn't put in an appearance. There's no, there's no mix of randomness and determinism that gets you free will. Now, ironically, one, one of the fears that religious people have is that this way of viewing the world dehumanizes us. But rather, I think it humanizes us. What could be more dehumanizing than to say that, that most people throughout human history 
are in some crucial way responsible for the fact that they were born at the wrong time to the wrong parents, given the wrong beliefs, given the wrong religion, the wrong intellectual influences, and as a result of that, they deserve to be punished for eternity. And, that, and the God that designed this diabolical apparatus is somehow still good. So to conclude, I just want to bring this back to, to the direct experience of consciousness in the present moment. It's generally argued that, that free will presents us with a compelling mystery. We have this robust experience of freedom, and yet we can't figure out how to map it onto physical reality. I'm arguing that's not the case. I think this is a, a, a symptom of our confusion. The, the illusion of free will, on my, on my account, is itself an illusion. There is no illusion of free will. Thoughts and intentions simply arise. What, what else could they do? Now, some of you might think this sounds depressing, but it's actually in, incredibly freeing to see life this way. It, it does take something away from life. What it takes away from life is an egocentric view of life. Now, we're not truly separate. We are linked to one another. We are linked to the world. We are linked to our past and to history. And what we do actually matters. Because of that linkage, because of the permeability, because of the fact that we can't be the true locus of responsibility, that's what makes it all matter. So you, you can't take credit for your talents, but it really matters if you use them. You can't, you can't really be blamed for your weaknesses and your failings, but it matters if you correct them. Pride and shame don't make a lot of sense in the final analysis, but they were no fun anyway. These are, these are isolating emotions. But what, what does make sense are things like compassion and love. Caring about well-being makes sense. Trying to maximize your well-being and the well-being of others makes sense. There is still a... a, a difference between suffering and happiness, and love consists in wanting those we love to be happy. All of that still makes sense without free will. And of course, nothing that I've said makes social and political freedom any less valuable. Having a gun to your head is still a problem worth rectifying wherever intentions come from. So, so, so the freedom to do what one wants is still precious. But, but the idea that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for what we want, I think, needs to be revised. It just can't be mapped on to reality, neither objective nor subjective. And if we're going to be guided by reality, rather than by the, the fantasy lives of our ancestors, I think our view of ourselves needs to change. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Now, for those of you who are still thinking clearly after that onslaught, it's time for some questions and discussion uh, for Sam. Um, there are microphones throughout the, the auditorium. There is one uh, here and here and one upstairs. And also, of course, number five and six for everybody behind us. Um, when you do want, if you do want to ask a question, can I ask you to make it brief? We've got about 15 minutes, and obviously we'd like to... There are many other things uh, that Sam has uh, worked on that I'm sure people will want to talk about, so that if I can ask you to make it reasonably brief. Um, before we start, I just want to ask Sam one question. What is the consensus, do you think, in the scientific community about your argument? I mean, you've uh, mentioned that there are schools of thought, people like Daniel Dennett, who have a different view. How close do you think we are to some kind of universal declaration of the uh, illusory nature of free will? Um, well, it's just the state of affairs is really that most people just don't want to think about it. I mean, most people just think that there's no... There's no uh, most people are, are powerfully... Their intuitions are powerfully shaped by the, the illusion, the sense that they have the freedom to consciously author their thoughts and actions. So people feel that there is a compelling subjective mystery and they don't, that no one has been able to give an argument about how it would map onto to physical reality, but people feel that the, 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 the experience is so compelling that there's just no reason to, to worry about it. This is the state from which we need to live. Then there are people like Dan who uh, have a different, from my view, essentially change the subject. I mean, the, the, the disagreement between Dan and myself is essentially this. It's like we're living in a world where most people believe in Atlantis and they believe in the underwater kingdom and, and you know, they, they, they read Plato closely trying to figure out where it was. And, and um, I want to say Atlantis doesn't exist, it didn't exist, people are confused about Atlantis. Uh, Dan wants to say is that Atlantis is really Sicily, and he'll give a whole argument about why Sicily answers to many of the claims that people are making about Atlantis. And I want to say, no, but, but they're still talking about being underwater, Now Sicily <laughs> doesn't do that. And he says, but Sicily is a great place, and there's reasons to visit, and let's talk about Sicily. <laughs> and... When he and I argue about this, he begins to respond to me as though I'm saying Sicily doesn't exist. And that's where, so there's a, there's a fair amount of talking past one another in, in these kinds of debates. Uh, of course Sicily exists, but the people who are talking about underwater, an underwater kingdom are at the very least confused. And, that, and that's the situation we're in with free will. I can see us scheduling a Sicily-Atlantis conversation mm -hmm. at some stage in the future. Um, we'll take questions from the floor now. We'll go over here. Questioner from number four. Um, does delusion of free will mean there is no such thing as so, um, self-conscious and only accidental blame? I'm sorry, I missed that last piece. Does delusion of free will mean there is no such thing as a conscious decision and there is only accidental blame? A accidental blame? No accidental such blame. Um, so no such thing as a conscious decision. Is there only accident oh, or blame? Oh, um, well, so I'll, I'll answer what I what I uh, think you were getting at there. It, it, the it's not that consciousness is meaningless, because uh, so within philosophy, the, the argument that consciousness is always just behind the times and has, serves no purpose 
it's called epiphenomenalism. So consciousness just doesn't do anything. We're just, it's just a movie that's playing that it's like you can, you can turn the monitor off your computer and the lights go out, but your computer is still doing all the things it was doing anyway. So that the monitor is, is kind of an epiphenomenon uh, relative to what the computer is actually doing. Uh, my argument against free will doesn't really imply epiphenomenalism about consciousness because it could, it could be that certain things have to be promoted to consciousness in order to have the effects that they have. It's just that their promotion doesn't, isn't something that we ever, as conscious witnesses, ever engineer. So, for instance, I, so I can unconsciously shift in my seat and do from time to time to, to ease various pains, and, so, and I, can, this can, I can be unaware of any of this, but I can't unconsciously decide, well, actually, this pain in my hip warrants a trip to an orthopedist. Right, so, so, so a certain something may have to rise into consciousness, and therefore begin a cascade of other uh, effects that that you know that, that consciousness could be the difference that makes the difference, and I think it is in, in many cases. But it's still a mystery why that particular thought pattern arose in that moment, and and it's I'm all the, the, in, in the present moment. It's always true to say you don't know what's coming next as a matter of consciousness. And, um, and the larger context is you didn't make yourself. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your genome. You didn't pick so anything that is, actually explains the totality of what you are is something you can't truly own. And so the, so the, the, the role of luck and, the, and, the, and its moral significance, I think, is, is something we have to talk about. Coming next from number three. Hi, thanks for that. That was great. Um, my question's hypothetical, but I think it's rather plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, what should we, and I say we as a global community, maybe rational members of the global community, do in the event of a faith-based nuclear attack? Um, <laughs> and perhaps take the position of a hypothetical president of the United States. How would you address that? And maybe also speculate how President Obama or President Romney, God forbid, uh, how they may. You, you've speculated on that a bit. What, what, what should we do? How would in, you respond? At, in the aftermath of a faith-based nuclear right. attack? And not, uh, a nuclear 9-11, I guess. Well, I mean, it seems to me that, 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 the, that the faith part is, is not in, particularly relevant once the bombs have actually fallen. <laughs> Uh, hey, let's say one. Uh, I, mean, I, I think I think the the what you what you may be getting at is just this that faith. Intro- this is something obviously that I, I I went into in some detail in my first book, The End of Faith. But the problem with with otherworldly faith, the problem with the idea that you get everything that you could conceivably want after you die, is that it takes de- the 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 entirely rational and important motivating component of death out of the equation. So, you have, you, so, you, so then, you, then you can walk around the world meeting people who are in some basic sense eager to die, and they're not bluffing. There are many secular people and, and religious liberals and religious moderates who think that everybody's bluffing, and it doesn't matter how many people make a suicide video and then blow themselves up. 
it's, they still think that, that, that in some sense you can't trust people's uh, representation of their beliefs. You can't take that at face value. There's always some deeper thing. They've been manipulated. They've been brainwashed. They've been, it's politics. It's economics. It's never the faith. And notice, when you, when you see that game being done, when, when, when you see someone looking for a deeper explanation behind religion, notice the asymmetry here. Notice that no one ever does it in reverse. No one, no one ever meets somebody uh, with a grievance uh, and hears them say, you know, I, I just I had no hope. I had, you know, there was, I, I couldn't afford school. Uh, uh, I was desperate uh, because we've been living under occupation for decades. I saw no reason to live. So then I, I entered the jihad because it seemed the only game in town. No one ever hears that. First of all, you, you fundamentally never hear that. But let's say you did hear that. No one is tempted to go beneath that and say, well, what's the real religious motive? Okay, they're always looking for an economic or political motive behind the religion. No one ever looks for the religious motive behind the economics or politics. I'm not saying there is one, but it's just if you play this game only in one direction, you'll always be discounting the people's religious beliefs. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I think that, that faith... The, the, the certainty of paradise is intrinsically dangerous. One, because it's very likely false, right? There's no good reason to believe it. So if you, it's, you're, you're actually failing to maximize the only circumstance of well-being that is, you can be certain of. But two, it, it allows people to do things that would be unthinkable uh, otherwise. And that's, yeah, so I, I do worry about that. Mm-hmm. Up here. Hi. Uh, you talk about treatment instead of punishment. How do you explain that the coercive treatment isn't a violation of the personal autonomy and the personal values of the offender, and doesn't that violation end up constituting a kind of punishment anyway? Also, why not talk about treatment and punishment at the same time? Well, it's just, it's a question of, that that, that question is arising in a context in which we don't understand the the details, and therefore our treatments for anything at the level of the mind, are incredibly coarse. And if you're talking about pharmacology, they have a spectrum of, of undesirable side effects, and uh, and nothing really works all that well. So, so you have to imagine the case where we really have a deep understanding, and we really have remedies that work, and they don't come with all of these other terrible side effects. So you're not having to weigh you know, symptoms, uh, the symptoms of the disease versus the symptoms of the cure, uh, you just, it's, it's, it's much more analogous to, you know, the antibiotic, uh, well, that's probably not a good, a good analogy because there are side effects, but, you know, the tumor was removed and no one is, is left wondering uh, whether that was a good idea because the, the problem was discreet enough, that the remedy was, was clear enough, and the outcome was, was good. Uh, in that case, you're just talking, it's like, I'm not going to worry very much about someone's right to be a psychopath. You know, if we have a cure for psychopathy, which is, you know, you just get it in the milk now, but then we have parents who don't like the idea of this cure, even though we don't have side effects, and they're, now they're raising psychopathic children, 
um, who we all have to deal with, that becomes a, again, in the gray areas, it becomes something to debate because you're talking about cures that don't necessarily work, incomplete understanding, side effects, then that, and that's the world in which we're going to be living for a very long time, perhaps forever. But where things become clear and actionable, I think our, our intuitions just naturally change. It used to seem uh, completely insane to, I would imagine, to even fix somebody's teeth. You know, it's like orthodonture is this crazy artifice that we have foisted upon ourselves at some point. And yet now, if your kid has very crooked teeth, it is the compassionate and not entirely uh, intrusive thing to do to, to, to fix them. And the kid will thank you when they're uh, you know, old enough to, to see the benefit. And so it's, we don't waste a lot of time thinking about the ethics of things like that now. And yet when they're novel, I think, it's the novelty is startling. Uh, I accept your premise about the uh, non-existence of free will. I want to explore your assertion that it matters. You've illustrated the point that it matters largely in reference to the criminal justice system. Uh, for most of us, most of the time, our lives don't intersect with the criminal justice system. So can you illustrate this uh, assertion by explaining how you've conducted your life differently since you landed on these ideas about free will? Uh, <laughs> well, I've managed to stay out of the criminal justice system. Uh, yeah, I mean, so the, the, the criminal justice component of it doesn't, isn't something that I deal with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, but the the ethical component is, and the emotional component is, and I can tell you it has, it does, I don't always see the world this way. I mean, I sort of have to remind myself that I see the world this way. I mean, there are many modes in which we all function, but when I do see the world this way, it completely undercuts the basis for hatred. I mean, there is just, there is no rationale for, for hating a person I mean, the, the, the equation between a, the crocodile and the, the man with the axe does actually become valid for me emotionally. Now, again, it's, it sets a very high bar if I was the person who was attacked. But even in those cases, when I get into some, I mean, not physically attacked, but when I, when I get into some situation with, with somebody where I, I'm liable to take their hostility, their hostility personally, and find and you know find them as the the source, uh, something that I, uh, you know, that, that inspires anger or hatred or you know some really negative uh, emotion. That viewing a kind of wider, with a wider lens, how we both got into that situation, just the, the bottom drops out, of, and, and the logic of of indulging that that mood falls away. And that just, that seems to me to be an intrinsically good thing. Now there's, there, people begin to worry, well, what about all the good moods? I mean, can you still love people while viewing them as part of this vast fabric of, of causality? And uh, I find that, that there is no sacrifice to the good stuff. I mean, it, it's not, I mean, first of all, things are, have to be sort of situationally appropriate. I'm not constantly looking at my daughter thinking about she's just a part of the physical universe and, wow, you know, neurotransmitters giving rise to all this cuteness. Uh, I mean, that's, 
that's not the mode I'm in, but even, even to think in those terms, it doesn't cancel the desire for her happiness. It doesn't cancel, I mean, the, the, the love survives the truth. It doesn't, love, love is not vulnerable to knowing how things are arising. And knowing how things are arising doesn't nullify all the distinctions about, about the differences, in it, the possible differences in, in human experience that we care about. We still care about living good, happy, easy, positive lives. And it's, it, it, what else could we care about? We're really almost out of time, but out of fairness, I want to take one quick question from each of these microphones. So if we can start over here, please. Um, hello, how are you doing? Um, I found, basically, when, when we all go home tonight, I'm sure some of us will be told if we're lucky that we're loved by, you might have just touched on this by our families and partners and things. And I'm sure a lot of people in here will be thinking, yeah, but that's not your decision. <laughs> like, you love me, but that, that just derives from events that are out of your control. Right. And I, although I found your argument very compelling, it's, it's just that that facet is a bit depressing to me, um, that, no, <laughs> that no one actually loves me if I don't make the choice. So, <laughs> I, um, yeah, do you, do you, are you a bit unhappy with the idea that, I don't want to get a bit personal, but your wife doesn't, didn't make the decision to love you, she just does. <laughs> do, you, do you find that a bit depressing? Or, yeah, right. how do you deal with that? Um, well, it's, it's not that, I, mean, I think the, the stripping off the illusion doesn't just change all the bad stuff, leaving all the good stuff exactly as it was. I think there's, there's a cost to, you lose certain kinds of, of pleasures or they become, you, you can't take them as seriously as you otherwise would. And if you are, if you want to be sufficiently adolescent about it, you could regret the loss of the... So, you know, it's, it's, just, it's sort of like losing Santa Claus. And when you lose Santa Claus, you've actually lost something. It didn't get replaced by something that, that consoles you in precisely the same way. So Christmas got a little less fun when Santa Claus was, was fully debunked. And yet, bel believing in Santa Claus and things like Santa Claus has so many other costs that you just couldn't indulge it even if you wanted to. And... And so there are some there are some Santa Claus-like things that you lose, perhaps. And I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what what they all are. But but I don't see. It's not. It's not. It's a, you're you're sort of asking. Implicit in your question is that, that there may be some choice here. But there's no. It's like either this seems to be the way the world is to you, or it doesn't seem that way. And it's you can't choose to believe one way or the other based on how it makes you feel. Or at least if you do succeed in doing that, you should be pretty sure you're deceiving yourself. Uh, I mean, the, the way the belief makes you feel can't be one of your reasons for believing it. It's got, you've got to believe it based on what you think is true. Uh, but on the whole, I, I find it almost entirely, the change almost entirely positive. I mean, it's, it is all of the negative states of mind that become so intractable and just 
motivate people to waste their entire lives, really, are undercut by this, uh, that are, are anchored to this illusion. And the, I mean, the, the depth to which we can take things personally. I mean, so, so if I read my Twitter feed and I see all the people who hate me and think I'm an idiot and all the people who misunderstand the thing I just said and I did, you know, it, it, it's just, it, the moment I begin to lock in and take it personally, well then, this is, it's just like picking up a hot coal. I mean, there's nothing good about it. It's just, it's, it, and, but an ability to, to, to disengage from that and to see the illusion of, of, of that does come at the cost of you can't indulge the good stuff at the same level uh, you otherwise would. So, so again, like pride and hatred are, are sort of on a similar level. So, like, how much, how proud can I be of something? You know, let's, let's say I do something exactly the way I wanted to have done it, and it's a success, and everyone tells me that was great. No one could have done it the way you just did it. Don't you feel good about yourself? When I look closely, I, I can't really make much out of that moment, and and it's not, and, and so I, therefore I can't really be so motivated by that kind of turn of events. I mean, I just I the, the I just can't feel. I see too much of how luck was involved and other people's contributions and just stuff I wasn't aware of and it's just it's you know it's like hitting a golf ball you know sometimes it goes great and you feel like Tiger Woods and sometimes it goes into the woods and you're and the indulgence of taking credit for the one so fully and and feeling like a schmuck for the other um, that vacillation between the two uh, at a certain point becomes just a source of suffering. I mean, it's just not, it's, it's, it's an illusion. It's a, it's a dream you can wake up from. Paradoxically, you can still want to play golf and still have fun playing golf. It's just you're just less miserable. Uh, and a quick question from you. Uh, hi, Sam. Um, hi. I'm just wondering, uh, you mentioned a couple of times the uh, sort of being unlucky if you were born uh, with bad genes or, or, you know, to be a psychopath or something like that. And I'm just wondering, is there any evidence to your knowledge that uh, there is such a thing as like a psychopath gene or an equivalent, oh, yeah. something yeah, like yeah. that? I mean, we, we, uh, the genetics of it are not totally worked out. I mean, the contributions, it's not like Huntington's disease where it's a 100% contribution and we know what, the, what genes are involved. But, but, yeah, clearly there's a genetic... A component to psychopathy, and you know, so there are people who have this complement of genes who don't wind up being psychopaths, but they have they they can have some of the traits of there's a, there's a scale of of traits of psychopathy, uh, and it's you know some like almost everything that we care about, some combination of genes and and environmental influences that cause it. So this has been a classic opening for a festival of dangerous ideas. Golf, Ben Stiller, psychopaths, and a cherished illusion going out the window. So I'm hoping you're all going to head out into the night, relieved of the burden of free will, <laughs> hoping that you're lucky, that you ended up with the right parents. Sam will be signing books in the foyer as we leave here. Uh, I'd like you to join me in thanking him, and I hope to see you over the weekend. Thank you.